let's get back into our uh, 2 Samuel 23, into our mighty men. If you, uh, you have your outline there, we're at Talk 2, uh, and we're looking in particular at verses 13 to 17. I love this next story. It's actually quite out there, as if the other stories weren't out there. Uh, but now what we're doing is we're meeting three new guys, but these guys, we don't know their names. So, you know, we met Josheb, Bashabeth, Eleazar and Shammah before. These three, we don't know their names. Uh, we're going to call them the nameless three. So there was the famous three in the first talk. Now there's the nameless three in this talk. Uh, it's a bit like on the news, you know, when they have something that's happened in Afghanistan or Iraq that involves the SAS and they, they put a black line across their eyes because we can't show you these men or at all because they go deep undercover and we, we don't want to, uh, to blow their cover. Uh, it's sort of like this is with these guys. We can't reveal the identity of these men. And it's actually a good analogy because these guys were like the SAS commandos. That's what they were like. So look, look with me from verse 13 of 2 Samuel 23. And if you've got one of the Bibles there, that's page 293. So verse 13. Three of the 30 leading warriors went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam, while a company of Philistines was camping in the valley of Rephaim. Now, uh, I'm just going to pause there because that context mightn't mean a lot to you but it's actually very, very important to understand what was going on here because it tells us this is like a flashback to earlier in, in David's life. See, the cave of Adullam is where David was hanging out or more correctly hiding uh, before he became king. Uh, that's where this place is. You've got to remember the story. Saul was the first king of Israel. You remember how it happened? Saul was the first king appointed, he was an impressive man but very, very quickly Saul refused to listen to God and so God took his spirit away from Saul uh, and God sent Samuel, the prophet, to find the new king. And you remember how he went and he, God said go to Jesse's house and he went to Jesse and he said get out all your sons. Jesse lined up all his sons from the biggest down and, uh, and God said not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one and there were none left and then... Uh, Samuel said, hang on, Jesse, what's going on? He said, well, you can't mean the runt. You can't mean the runt of the litter because I've got little David. Little David's out there looking after the sheep and he gets David in and David is the man after God's own heart. And so David is anointed as the king. Uh, but this caused a problem because funnily enough, Saul was still king and Saul didn't appreciate having a pretender to the throne running around, in particular one like David who was good at killing people like Goliath and killing Philistines and all the people said we don't really like Saul, we love David and so there's this whole period in David's life where he was on the run and that's when he was at the cave of Adullam. Uh, Saul was trying to kill him and David had opportunities to kill Saul but he wouldn't do it. He said no, 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 I'm going to wait for him to die and then I will take over as king. Uh, so that's where we are but while David and actually during that time what's amazing is both Saul and David were killing Philistines while fighting each other. So they were sort of off fighting against the enemies and fighting against themselves. Sounds a bit like an Australian political party, I think. But, uh, but anyway, during those years, David's hideout, his lair, was this cave. And what happened was this cave became a rallying point for every misfit, every criminal, every refugee. They all rallied to David and came to this cave 
and really found a reason for living by coming there. Just look at how, uh, I've put it on your outline I think, 1 Samuel 22 talks about it. I'll read it out. It says, So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt or discontented rallied around him and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. See, that's who these three nameless mighty men were. They weren't soldiers from good families. Uh, They were desperate men looking for a second chance. That's who they were. And they came to this cave and they got a new beginning. They were the people who'd been kicked out of society, if you like, uh, and here they came and got a new beginning serving David, serving God's king. Uh, I just think this is a wonderful analogy for Christians, if you think about it. It's a reminder to us that if we have come to Christ, if we have come to God's king, then what we were in the past doesn't matter to God. Uh, We tend to be very middle class, sadly, Uh, and our sins tend to be respectable and hidden, unlike what these men would have had in their past, but our past is no less shameful than theirs for all that. Uh, We're all sinners, saved by grace, who have come to Jesus to find a new life, a new beginning. Uh, It's funny, most of the great ones in the Bible have awful things in their past. Have you noticed that? With the exception of Jesus, most of the great ones in the Bible have awful things in their past. They didn't come from the right part of society. Uh, They didn't come from the middle class. God doesn't look for middle class clean skins to use to build his kingdom. He looks for broken people who turn to his, to his king for hope. That's why I love that great passage in 1 Corinthians 6, you know the one I'm talking about, where uh, the Apostle Paul lists out all these horrible sins that, that the members of the church in Corinth had done in the past. Do you know the passage I'm talking about? He lists them all out and then he says this great line, that is what you were. That is what you were. But now Jesus has washed you clean. I think it's one of the great lines of the Bible. Well, that's what these men were. They were probably criminals, but criminals who'd found hope, uh, who'd found a new life, who'd found a reason for living, uh, and they'd found it in David, God's king. So let's go on, back to verse 14 in chapter 23. It says, At that time David was in the stronghold, the cave, and a Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. Now again, that's interesting if you know your Old Testament well, because Bethlehem was David's hometown. So that would have really riled David. He's in a cave and the Philistines are in his hometown. Yeah, you know. And so verse 15 says, David was extremely thirsty and said, if only someone would bring me water to drink from the well at the city gate of Bethlehem. For, for David, that was like a throwaway line. Gee, I'm thirsty and I'd love a drink from the well where I used to drink when I was a little boy. He wasn't commanding anyone to go get me a drink. He was just saying, I'm so thirsty, I'd love a drink. It would be like me saying, gee, I'd love a ginger beer like my grandma used to make when we were kids. You know, that, that's the sort of thing David's just throwing it out there. But the nameless three, these converted criminal commandos, they heard their saviour king speak. They heard him express the desires of his heart and so they wanted to please him. Look at verse 16. I think it's one of the great stories. It says, So three of the warriors broke through the Philistine camp and drew water from the well at the gate of Bethlehem. They brought it back to David. Just sounds so matter of fact, but this is incredible. You've got to understand this. They had to run 20 miles, 
first of all. Uh, and right in the middle of their journey was the Philistine army and these guys don't run round, they ran through. And so they just said, here's the Philistine army, who cares? The well we want to get to is on the other side and they just killed Philistines. Just went right through the middle. They didn't sneak around, they took them on, they fought them, they broke through, they get to the well. Well, I, I'm sort of imagining them fighting off Philistines while one of them lowers a thing down the well and gets some water out. They put it in you know, their stomach lining of a goat or whatever they used for water in those days and, and then they said, alright, we've got to fight our way back again. So they fought their way back again, ran the 20 miles back to David said, here's your water. Uh, some of you guys run these marathons and triathlons and think, I know you're surprised I don't, but that's alright. But I, I, I tell you, try that one on next time. You know, try, if you're running the city to surf, I was telling you they were running the city to surf later, do it with a Philistine garrison in the middle. That'll test you. Uh, these guys are just crazy, aren't they? They're absolute psychos. That's what they are. And why? Why do they do this crazy thing? Because they heard the cry of the Messiah and they said, I want to please him. That's why they did it. They loved God and they loved God's king, the king who had welcomed them even though they were the misfits of society. They heard his cry and they loved him and they would do anything for him. I just love these guys, whoever they were. But I want to say more than that, gee, I'm challenged by these guys. Do you just feel a challenge, almost a gauntlet being thrown down to you by these guys? I do. I love Jesus. There's an emotional word, Graham, wherever you are. I love Jesus. And he is greater than David. He has done more for me than David ever did for these guys. He is my saviour who has given me eternal life. I love Jesus and this makes me ask what crazy things am I doing for my king? Doesn't it make you ask that? See, sometimes the Christian life can become staid and conservative and frankly boring. Uh, it, it can become about obligation. It can become about ticking boxes. Uh, there are certain things you're just meant to do if you're a Christian. And sometimes it can feel like my job as the minister of this parish is just to tell you the things you're meant to do as a Christian. You're meant to be committed to church. You're meant to read your Bible. You're meant to pray. You're meant to be generous with your money. You're meant to love your wife. You're meant to provide for your family. You're meant to read the Bible with your kids. You're meant to care for the needs of others. I could go on and on. And some of those things are hard and we struggle to do them. But they are like the basics, if you like. Uh, the commands of Jesus for those who call him their Lord and their King. But what I'm talking about with the anonymous three is different. You see, David didn't order them to do this crazy thing. They hung on his words. They listened for his heartfelt cry and then they did it. Not because they had to. They would have been part of David's mighty men even if they didn't do this. They, they, they had their place. They didn't have to do this. They didn't earn extra pay for it. They did it because the love of their king compelled them. I want to ask you to get in touch with your emotions for a second. Men, do you love Jesus? Remember, be African for a second. Do you love Jesus? And as you read the scriptures, as you read his word, do you hear the heartfelt desires of Jesus. I do. I do in places like Matthew 28 where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. 
Jesus isn't commanding every Christian to go. He's not commanding every Christian to go. But gee, he'd love it if we did, wouldn't he? You know, or where the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, where, where he is explaining why he seems so crazy to people. It's a great chapter. He, he's telling people, this is why I'm crazy. This is why I'm wandering around the world getting rocks thrown at me. This is why I tell people about Jesus even when they throw me in prison, even when they say they're going to kill me. And he says, it's because Christ's love compels me. That's why. I don't have to do it. There's no verse of scripture that says, I must wander around Europe having rocks thrown at me. But he says, Christ's love compels me because I'm convinced that one died for all. That is why I do it. See, I'm not talking about a command here or something that everyone must do, but what I want to ask you is this. Is there some mighty man, crazy thing that the love of Christ is compelling you to do? That's what I want to ask. Is there some crazy, mighty thing that the love of Christ is compelling you to do? See, over the years... The love of Christ has compelled people to do some incredible things. In the 1800s and the early 1900s, hundreds of young English men, evangelical men, gave up everything and generally they were Oxford and Cambridge educated lawyers and doctors and those sort of things and they gave up everything to go and preach the gospel in Africa and in China. Have you read about any of these guys? These guys for a, for a period there in the 1800s, the early 1900s and most of them died there. Most of them died within 10 years of getting there and most of them saw no growth in the gospel for what they did but a couple of them planted churches that still thrive today in those places that have survived persecution and survived everything else that the devil's thrown at them and they have seen hundreds of thousands of people become Christians. Those men didn't do that because they had to. There's no command of scripture, go to Ghana and die of dysentery. You won't find that anywhere in your Bible. And people thought they were crazy. People thought they were wasting their life. Their mums and dads tried to convince them, it's okay to be a Christian and just serve in your local church. Christian mums and dads have been trying to convince their children of that for years. It's okay, because it is, isn't it? It is okay. But the love of Christ compelled them. It's nowhere near the same scale. Uh, when I told my dad that I was giving up my job to, uh, to go to more college and train to be a pastor, teacher, and look where I've ended up with you lot, there you go. Uh, <laughs> after he stopped swearing, which took a little while, he said, the words he used were, what a waste, what a waste. First person in our family to go to uni, a good job, promising career, what a waste. To him, it looked like I was sacrificing my life for a cup of water. That's what it looked like. And mine isn't even a sacrifice. You give me a five-bedroom house to live in. It's a disgrace what I live in. You know, it's not even a sacrifice, but what a waste, he said. To the world, it looks crazy, doesn't it? And I think this passage asks you, what crazy... Sorry, I'm a bit emotional. My grandmother died this week. What crazy cup of water type thing 
might the love of Christ be compelling you to do? Can I get a cup of water actually? (laughs) (laughs) Who are our three anonymous men? (laughs) I think sometimes men, especially men once they get past 35 years old, uh, you hear me preaching this world-changing gospel where we exist to glorify God. But then there's this disjunct where you think, does that mean I hand out the weekly snacks? Is that what it means? Does this world-changing gospel mean I mow lawns and serve morning tea and hand out weekly snacks? I want you to lift your eyes That's all I want you to do. Is the love of Christ compelling you to do something? To say to your gospel team, your small group, let's get serious. Let's stop this nonsense where we don't turn up because it's state of origin night. Let's get serious about pushing each other in evangelism. Why don't we host a night for our friends and actually invite them? Why don't we go and knock on doors together? Let's do it. Let's get serious. Is the love of Christ compelling you to start a seeker's Bible study at your work and put your name on the notice board or the internal email and say, if you're interested in talking about Jesus, ring Phil down in accounts, wherever you work. Is the love of Christ compelling you to go and knock on all your neighbours' doors with invitations to the Kids Holiday Club? Is the love of Christ compelling you to give up a week of your hard-earned annual leave and come and teach a small group of kindergarten boys at the Kids Holiday Club. We never have enough men doing that. Is the love of Christ compelling you to take a year off work and go to more college and do a one-year course there so that you can be a better leader in our church? Is the love of Christ compelling you to say, I only need to work four days a week? It would be nice to have overseas holidays, but really they're a waste of money because I'm looking forward to heaven. I'm going to give an extra day to Christian ministry. Is the love of Christ compelling you to go home to your wife and say, maybe we should think about missionary service, even though we're 47? Is the love of Christ compelling you to commit to giving away 30% of your income to support gospel work? Because, hey, you've had all those raises over the years and you used to live fine on that lower income years ago. Is the love of Christ compelling you to maybe take a lower paying job so you're not so damn busy? So you can actually meet with other men and read the Bible and get to church every week. Or maybe, yes, the love of Christ is compelling you to throw in your career and go into full-time ministry. For some of you here, is the love of Christ compelling you to give your life to him and become a Christian? You see, none of those things except that last one do you have to do. They're not commands. They're not commands of Scripture. The Bible commands you to read your Bible. The Bible commands you to be committed to church. It commands you to be generous. It commands you to love your wife, but it will never say to you, why haven't you gone to Tanzania? You don't have to. But as you read the Scriptures, as you hear the desires of your King for our world, is the love of Christ compelling you to do something? Not hand out weekly snacks. Not serve morning tea. But do something. Not because you have to, but because our King died for us all. 
Maybe it is. I don't know. I'll leave it with you. And here is the thing. If you do something like that, the world will think you are crazy. They'll think you are doing the equivalent of sacrificing your life for a cup of water. But what do we care what the world thinks? Really? And just on the side, I love the way these three do it together. The stories about Joshua and Eleazar and Shammah are great, but how much easier is it to do great things when you have men with you to do it with you? That's why I got Graham and Gary up before. I didn't want to get one guy up, I wanted to get more than one guy up. So that's why we have our small groups, that's why we have our gospel teams, because you can do more together. We've got brothers and sisters to, to ask you how are you going and to spur you on and even to stand by your side. Can I tell you, make your midweek groups strong, be committed to them and it will help you do things together and each person grow stronger. But if we come back to our passage now, our story gets even stranger because after all that, when they bring the water to David, what does he do? If this was the movies and it was King Brad Pitt and Peter was the nameless man who brought him the cup of water, this is what happened, there'd be a crescendo of music and their men would be on their knees before him and he would drink it like the solo man. I'm dribbling down here. And the men would cheer and then he would share it with them. That's what would happen. What does happen? Look at verse 16 again. But he refused to drink it. Instead he poured it out to the Lord. David said, Lord, I would never do such a thing. Is this not the blood of men who risked their lives? So he refused to drink it. Such were the exploits of these three warriors. Lisa would say, David, what on earth? What a waste. They've gone 20 miles, killed men, come back holding the water so it doesn't... I just have this image of them making it not spill while they're fighting the Philistines. But, you know. uh, and then you pour it out in front of them onto the floor of the dusty cave. Deep down, that's what you're thinking, isn't it? What a waste. I was when I was reading. That's only because I'm so worldly. See, I'm like the Israelites who would go through their flocks and find the sheep with the gammy leg. So that's the one I'll sacrifice to God because we've got to kill it anyway. He doesn't need the good one if he's just going to burn it up. God does care. And David knew God desires and God deserves the first fruits. God deserves the unblemished lamb. And David was saying, this water is too good for me. It is too costly for me. Men have spilt blood for this water. And the key line is right there, look at it. He poured it out to the Lord. See, David was offering this costly water to God as a sacrifice because only God is worthy of the level of sacrifice and love and devotion that had gone into getting that water. Do you know there was no better use for that water than what David did with it? No better use. And as hard as this to believe, the soldiers wouldn't have been disappointed. They would have been incredibly honoured. Because David was saying, what you did, your efforts, your sacrifice, I've used it to glorify God. I've used it to honour God. And it's the same with our sacrifices. When your non-Christian friends work out that you might actually give away money 
and not just little bits but big bits of money to support gospel work, they think you're crazy. They say that is the equivalent, they wouldn't use, they'd use different terminology, you can think what it might be, they'd say that's the equivalent of pouring out your water on the hard-earned floor. That's what they'd say. When they see us do these things I've talked about, no one thinks more highly of you, the world won't think you're, you're great. They think we're crazy. But God doesn't. Our king doesn't. Do you believe that? Africans? <laughs> do you believe that? I pray you do. As I close now, there's one other mighty man I want you to meet. From verse 18 and following, you can read about all the others later. Uh, just flick your eyes down, these mighty men. You can read about Abishai, who they said was greater even than the three. You can read about Benaiah, who killed a lion on a snowy day. Why it mattered that it was a snowy day, I don't know. He also killed an Egyptian giant by gripping the Egyptian giant's spear, turning it around and shoving it into him. I think that's great. But then it just lists out the 30 remaining guys and doesn't tell us what they did, just that they were mighty men. But there's one man who stands out, if you scan down the list from verse 24. Just scan down that list. Verse 24, just flick through the names. Flick through, don't yell it out or you ruin it for your brother next to you. Going down, you see Heleb, son of Bana, you see Ittai, you see Abi Albon. I think I've met some of these guys around here. There you go. You meet Ahayim, you meet Hezro. Who's the one that stands out if you know your Bible? Uriah the Hittite in verse 39. Why does he stand out? Because he was, if he was one of David's mighty men back in 2 Samuel 11, you read about how Uriah had a very beautiful wife. And while he was off being a mighty man for his king, what did his king do? He slept with his wife. Even though he had wives of his own, wives of his own, while Uriah was off being a mighty man for David, David did the doggest act of the Bible. He slept with his wife and just to make it worse, when he found out she was pregnant, what did he do? He said, put Uriah up in an impossible situation, worse even than Josheb, Bashabeth's situation and have him killed. These mighty men gave up their lives for David and he was a great king but he was also a rotter, an absolute rotter like we all are. They were faithful to him even when he was not faithful to them. How much greater is our king? How much greater is the sinless Lord Jesus who died for our sin? How much greater is he? How much more worthy of our love and our faithfulness and our sacrifice? See, there's that great verse in 2 Timothy that talks about Jesus and it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. They couldn't say that about David, but they can say it about Jesus. That is your king. That's who we serve. Well, that's David's mighty men. I hope they inspire you. I hope they encourage you, maybe challenge you, maybe rebuke you a little. But of them all, the reason I love the nameless three in particular is that I would hazard a guess that none of us in this room are going to have our name written in books. I don't think Billy Graham is in this room. I don't think Peter Jensen is in this room. I don't think Eleazar or Joshua however you pronounce his name, are in this room. 
But here's the thing, that doesn't mean we cannot do great things for our king. See, if you, brought, if you just bring the nameless three forward to us sitting here tonight, what happened? They heard the cry of Jesus. They weren't content to sit still in the relative safety of church and be on the Bible reading roster. They wanted to do something great for him. And so they said, stuff comfort. They said, stuff what's expected of me. They said, stuff what other people think about me. They said, stuff what other people are doing or not doing around me. Let's go and do something great. Because the love of Christ compels us. I love this. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this inspiring part of your word, for these three men whose names we do not even know. But men who knew your Messiah, David, and loved him and so wanted to serve him. And we pray that each of us here might hear that same call, that we might listen to you and hear your desire for us and that the love of Christ might compel us to do something that might just be seen as a little bit crazy by our world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the bottom of your, uh, your question, your thingamajig sheets there, whatever you call them, you'll see three discussion questions. Uh, again, no obligation. But just maybe in twos or threes, you might want to think of some Christian men who have inspired your, you in your faith and just share them with others. Some people who have inspired you by being out there for their faith and you might pray and thank God for them. And then you might just share with each other what are some of the things that hold us back from being mighty for Jesus and talk about why they hold us back. And then is there something you have always dreamed of doing for Jesus but have never got around to doing it? Just maybe you might want to share that with some of the guys around you. Well, we do that for 10 minutes. I think then Jason's got some dessert planned for us and then we're going to pack up and go home. You might want to pray together as well.